Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I am joined by my colleague and good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I've recovered from yesterday's clipper pacer debacle and ready to do our monthly summit here yeah i'm uh, i'm very excited it's two questions too hot today uh really quick the the pacers played the clippers yesterday in one of the weirdest games of the season lost 139 to 133 i think nicholas batum had a career high if it wasn't a career high it was damn close at 35 points on the second half um on a lighter note or more positive note pacers related chris duarte had one of his best games in a while yesterday um, was really active defensively, just shot well from the floor, had some really nice reads out of the pick and roll as well. Um, this team is, uh, they're they're in a bit of a rut as they have been since uh, the last time we did our two questions to, uh, actually, I think last time we did this, uh, yeah, it's the 18th today. If we go back to around the 18th of December, this team was uh, looking like they might be able to get to 500. They were 13 and 18 last time that we talked. Uh, how many wins do you think they have since then? I know you know the exact answer, but. Do I know the exact answer? I mean, it's been one in the last what? Uh, one in the last 10 games. 10, yeah. So Two in the last 12. So that's, you know, it's something. Uh, yeah, it has been, it's been a very rough stretch. So I'm ready to dive right into, into, into our summit, if you are. Would you like to give a, uh, a quick uh re-up to, to, for anyone who has uh never listened to two questions too hot before or anybody who would like a primer before we dive in yeah so basically we call it two questions too hot in reference to former pa announcer red porter at the end of games would say two minutes too hot and then the crowd would kind of repeat that so it's just a play on that and then we each come up with two questions to ask most of the time i source them from twitter so if you want to ask a question you can send that in next month and uh, we don't know what the other person is coming with and we just kind of turn it into a brainstorming session about what the current state of the team is yeah so I, I'm trying to remember, did I start first or did you go first last time? I have no idea, but I'm I'm willing to defer to you. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I sourced some of my questions out of your questions as well. So hopefully I didn't take any of yours. I have backups if necessary. Um, the first one that I want to ask you, this is a little bit more overarching. And this is, this is my heater question that I, I've been excited to ask that I, I was telling you about before we got on the pod. Um, I took a question from somebody on Twitter, Pierre Wilson. He said, what do you think is the most important need for the Pacers team? And so I am going to make you power rank six things that I have decided the Pacers, well, not just decided, I've I've watched every single Pacers game. I know these are things that they need, but I'm going to make you do the very hard thing of ranking them uh, and then explaining your decision. So I love a ranking. (laughs) Yes, I, I love a power ranking too. Uh, if you, I can, I can definitely repeat this back to you if you need it. So here are the six things, playmaking, ball handling, scoring, shooting, defense, and athleticism. I know playmaking, ball handling kind of fall under the same umbrella, same thing with scoring and shooting, but there are, there's enough difference there that I think you can categorize it that way. So if you had to power rank that, which you do have to power rank that, um, how would you go about doing that and why? 
Well, this, this is a very tough question for me to answer straight off the spot, but I appreciate the thought that went into this from both you and uh, the Twitter ASCII. Um, my initial gut instinct is that the scoring element, just like yesterday, I mean, I think I saw a tweet on the stats from that game that that was the most points a team had scored without leading in a game all year because the Pacers finished with what 133 like it's tough to say which team should feel worse about giving the other opponent given who is out that many points a very odd game so I don't think that that's as much of an issue even though I know that they have gone through these long scoring droughts throughout the season and in part because we know that they have TJ Warren who hasn't played at all and while I don't like I never think it's so simple to say oh, just add back his 18 points and add that to their current total and look at, like, that's not how this works. If you add him back in, that's going to shift what everything else is. But you do have a very good scorer who hasn't played a single game for you. So I'm going to put scoring at the very bottom. And then number five, I think I'll just go ahead and go with athleticism because I think while it is important, And there are ways that this roster, I think, can't fully tap into stuff that the Mavericks would have run. I've mentioned this on other uh, Nick podcasts when we were discussing Obi Toppin, and we might get into Isaiah Jackson later. Um, You you can't use some of the same vertical gravity and lob plays because they just don't have the guys to run them. So that would be nice. That would give you another element of your defense. And certainly, like, I mean, offensively and certainly defensively, I can see some spots where, You know, it might be if you're going to go with this hedge scheme and you need to be rotating in and out quickly, um, it would be better to have, you know, some twitchier athletes with with functional strength as well as length and speed kind of in the Victor Oladipo mold. But I think that there are some ways around that. So we'll go scoring athleticism. Um, Number four. Hmm. This is now it's getting tough. I know, right? <laughs> um, hmm. Also, let us not forget Caitlin Cooper has said on pod she hates scoring, has it sixth overall. So be sure to yeah. add her at CQ <laughs> underscore Cooper on Twitter if you have questions about yep, why. I, she hates I scoring. hate watching offense, freaking terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this offense, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I'll go ball handling. I don't feel good about that because mm. I've seen how much it's bothered them at times this year. Interesting. Yeah, I think I've seen how much it's bothered them at times this year because I don't think that they really have anybody with the perfect combination of burst and handle against mm-hmm. pressure. I mean, that showed up in the game against the Knicks when Alec Burks really started ramping up the pressure against Brogdon and he couldn't really get past. But at the same time, he's had so many kind of nagging injuries throughout this season and last, and that's obviously a little bit of a drawback against him. I don't know how much some of that was impacting him, but again, um, they don't have TJ McConnell right now. He has a very, he can have a very saucy handle at some, at times. So um, that, that would help in that department if he was available, but he is not. So I think I can put that a little bit lower. Number three, I, wow. These, these three are all very big needs. And in fact, when somebody asked me, I was going to be like the classic Somebody's like, what type of players are they going to need? It was going to be like the classic, oh, you know, just your normal run-of-the-mill three and D forward who can make passes. and You know, the magic bullet player that every single roster needs. Um, 
I think that next up, I will go with... Man, I can't pick between these because they're all so valid. I mean, I think sometimes defensively, it's just that they don't do the right things and it's misplaced effort as much as, and again, you don't have TJ Warren and that would be a wing that you could throw at other people. So. You can I feel, feel the bad. grinds turning. I, yeah, you can feel it. I'm sure this is very listenable for people at this point. Um, yeah, I guess I'm going to go defense next. I can't believe I'm saying that. I really can't, given how bad the defense has been. Just for mm-hmm. people who don't know, like even with uh, going back since December 1st, and this is 232 minutes just with miles on the floor, they've given up 123 points per 100 possessions with opponents shooting 42% from three. So there's probably some luckiness there with how much teams are shooting the ball well, but not entirely with Turner and Sabonis on, they've given up 112 points per 100. And, and uh, no, that, I'm sorry, that's with Sabonis. That's just with Sabonis and no Turner is 112.9. With both of them on is 118. So, um, yeah, the defense has not been good lately. But if you look at the article I wrote yesterday, if you watch back that game against the Clippers yesterday, I don't think that all of that is entirely personnel specific. I think that they we're in a two, three zone and we're not rotating properly out of it. I think that they were in a drop and they had weak side defenders way overcompensating in the paint and not staying home when they were up against a team that was shooting the ball too well, really well. I think that they were hedging and treating Isaiah Hartenstein and, and Zubots like they were Jokic and leaving the corners open. So some of that's just like misplaced effort and stuff that probably could be cleaned up. I don't think it's going to be, uh, uh, top defense regardless of what they do but also like two years ago it was a uh, a steady defense I mean they were a good defense with most of these same people so um, I think that there are some things they can do there especially if TJ's healthy and I just think that offense uh, is is kind of you know more important at this point in time yeah. so two I'm gonna go playmaking because we've seen that throughout the year where if they come up against exaggerated coverages and, you know, somebody's actually blitzing and not just showing against Brogdon or the same against Levert, which it's a little bit weirder against Levert because he saw a lot of blitzes when he was with the Nets on the bubble and he didn't seem to be having as many problems getting the ball out as long as he stayed on ball this year. Um, just not a lot of passing. And like, I would say even to you, Like sometimes I think part of the problem with their shooting, so I might've even needed to reverse these is that they just don't have a lot of accurate passers. Like a lot of times the passes that get shot out to three are slightly out of pocket and then people are having to readjust to take them. And I do think that that's probably, you know, not a lot, but depress their, their percentages a bit. And number one, I'm going with shooting because it's just, it's, it's too hard for them when Teams can go into a game and be like, okay, all we need to do is trap Brogdon. And then if he does get the ball out of his hands, then we're going to go swarm Sabonis in the middle of the floor. And when he kicks it out, even if it's, you know, an open draw and dish, they just don't have the guys to knock down those shots. They're not going to stay in many firefights with teams, just like we saw against the Celtics when they gave up 18 threes. The Pacers were not going to outshoot them. And then it just becomes a simple math problem or when they're down in Miami and, you know, they can't score against Miami's zone and, and the Heat are just scoring three after three after three. 
Like, and this is where it all goes back and forth. Like I would have, I would probably have all three of these at level a between shooting, playmaking and defense. That would be like one, a one B one C with the other three coming after it, because I mean, we've talked about it with Ben Simmons in the past, like they're 29th in spot up efficiency for the year. And that's not even just, you know, three pointers. That's you catch the ball from another opponent. You might take a couple of dribbles and take a pull up. That's also a spot up attempt. They just don't have people to knock those shots down. And, and, you know, that just makes it easier for them to load up on other options. And that should be to your advantage. But if you're kicking it out into open space and then guys can't hit those shots, it's just, it bogs stuff down. And their offense is about, I believe at the same level as last year, which in some ways, probably speaks well given how bad they have shot the ball and that they've had so many injuries and replacement players playing but um in the long term that has to be a priority with what they're going to do at the trade deadline as well as over the summer and how they re-envision this roster because you can't it's just making stuff too hard on them but how would you lean with that I'm assuming you probably power rank these ahead of time and aren't going to be near as uh, long and drawn out as that just was for me well, no, I thought that was fantastic. Part of part of the joy in me for podcasts is listening to people think. Um, so I'm glad we could do that. I, I know a lot of people are, people are going to enjoy that, whether or not you think so. I know I'm right, so don't worry. Um, with this, I actually went very similarly to you. Um, I have scoring down at the bottom because I do think they've shown it, – it's it's not even about scoring that they need. Like it's more not, – not to jump around too much, but I think like Lance Stevenson was – kind of the prime example with this for me like he hasn't been amazing as a pacer but he's easily been one of their better rotation players just in terms of impact um offensively defenses this is another story he's been fine but like whatever we'll talk about that at some point but like just having somebody who can capably collapse the defense even if he's not scoring super well on the inside which he has scored pretty well on twos um it's been it's gone down recently as his pull-up has has faltered a little bit but just in terms of somebody who can actually get to the paint but also make plays while getting there and and after the as the defense reacts to him driving he's able to make plays um it sounds so simple but like they're just have not been guys consistently on the roster who can do that this year like having the ability to mix playmaking and ball handling has been an issue for the roster all year um so yes, scoring down at the bottom, uh, I would have athleticism right after, even though, which sounds crazy, but like the team, it, this is like a bottom five athleticism team in the NBA. I do think there are ways to play around it, but they, they clearly need that for sure. Still. Um, I have, uh, gosh, yes, I have, um, can I, can I speak? Yeah. I have ball handling next, then shooting and then playmaking. Uh, oh, I mean, defense, defense after ball handling and then playmaking um, much for the same reasons as you. I do think like defense is more for me. I think uh, like, like you mentioned, we've seen a lot that shows they can they can be better than they have been. But the point of attack issues have just been so apparent. Um, and in some ways, like, yeah, playing with a single big makes it less apparent. But like you m- mentioned with Miles, like it's not that simple. You know, there's a lot more that goes on here than just having a rim protector out there or not having a rim protector out there. Um, It's just, it's, it's, there's, there's so much going on here that that needs to be addressed. And I think again, with the shooting, like you mentioned, they just don't create good looks for themselves. And even if they do create open looks, they're not um, like you mentioned with the ball placement, like the, the passing and accuracy just in general, isn't great. The timing on passes is not always great. Uh, just and this is not like slandering any individual player. It's just 
you know, in general on the roster, it's been a problem. Like even with like Karras has been better as a pass for the last week or so, but his ball placement and timing hasn't been awesome. Um, part of it too is just guys not being in sync with each other. Like um, that, that definitely factors in, but yeah. So that, that I would rank it just, just as you did. Um, actually, I think I had shooting one spot lower, but um, I mean, I think it just, it, it stands to reason as you see over and over again, they, they struggle to, a collapse a defense. B if they're able to collapse a defense, they're not really good at capitalizing it on it, and it's just uh, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, 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 I would say too that like almost for me, it's that the defense has collapsed a lot of the time, and they can't get those bodies off the elbows and the blocks. Yeah, because I mean, well, you know, I yeah, the defense will it. collapse itself because they don't care about the spacing, the like, shooters. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they have one guy shooting over thirty-five percent from three. Um, that's just not going to cut it. And it's not because I look at spacing as, as three point percentage alone, but you do have to be able to hit shots and because you can just watch it. Like people do not respect people when they're coming off of picks in the same way that's been for this team and years prior, because it, you know, it, it's not quite the same gravity pull when Justin comes off of year as what it would have been with Doug McDermott, even though Justin has been shooting the ball better, especially over these last two or three games. To, much to his credit. And I do think that a lot of it gets overburdened sometimes with how much he's having to do off screens, even though they did mix in. And I liked seeing Chris Duarte do a little bit more of that against the Clippers yesterday. Um, but I mean, you can just see like, you're only shooting the ball X amount of times per game. So then it becomes how much do people care about you when you are not shooting the ball? That's what spacing is. And so yeah. much of the time you can see Nobody cares about two or three of the people that are standing out there on the court. If Sabonis is drawing a double team and he doesn't even have a ball, have the ball like he did at times up in Toronto at other points this season, that's a problem. If New York's strong side flooding four people over to him while there's three people dotting the other side of the floor, that's a problem. Like, and, and again, it's not because he can't pass out of it. Like his passes out of the post. I looked this morning's generating like 1.22 points per possession, but which is still really good. It's just that it's making it's making stuff harder because of how willing people are to pack the paint. So um, some way, some shape or form, they're going to have to find ideally three and D players that they they can put around, especially if they're going to keep with the head scheme, because, I mean, we've even seen it. They're doing more of that with Miles, even when Sabonis isn't on the court. They want to be having guys up, up playing either at the level or above the level, and that puts more pressure on you to be, you know, tagging the roller in both of those situations. And you're going to need to be able to get back out. That's what type of player they have to be looking for um, over the next six months here. So uh, I think that that sums up that particular question. Um, there were a lot of people that asked me, so I'm going to summarize this because like there were three or four people that asked this type of question. So it is. What has caused the regression in relative success over the last two seasons with roughly the same assemblage of players when the current coaching staff is obviously highly regarded? So, like, take success with a grain of salt. Like, I know they haven't been out of the first round of the playoffs, but they did make it to the playoffs two years ago and were a top four seed. Last year, they were in the play-in tournament, and right now, like, just to get to 25 wins feels like they're going to have to be at like a 50 game pace. So for them to get into the play in tournament would be, you know, quite an accomplishment at this point in time. And not, I'm not saying that that's something that I think really needs to happen. Even I think that it's probably in their better interest to just get the better pick, but point being, why are they worse now than what was the case over the last two years? Oh, wow. Um, 
Do we have a separate podcast for this one? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's a great question. Because um, I do think, like, I mean, we we talk about it on a micro scale all the time, but I think in terms of actually conglomerating it into one answer is uh, is where it gets harder. I do think um, it's kind of the polarity of the situation, if that makes sense. Like, they've tried to change up everything the last two years, twice now, without really changing personnel. Um, and I think that definitely factors into it. Like, there's been a, a definite push-pull between the roster and, and what coaches have wanted the roster to do, I think. Um, like you've talked about on, you know, with what Nate Bjorken wanted the defense to do last year and talking about what Rick Carlisle wanted the offense to do this year. Like, it just hasn't really been there. Um and I think, too, part of, like, this is where saying the human element sounds so rudimentary, but um, I just think this group of guys has very clearly gotten to a point where they're not on the same page with one another. And I, I do wonder how long it's been since they have been. It feels like, you know, midway point of last year is where we kind of hit that point to a degree. Um, so I think it's almost, uh, to me, it's just a lack of clarity um, like that, I almost went into that with uh, Pierre's question. Like, I think that's almost the most important need for this team, in my opinion. Like, okay, we need to know what you're doing. Like, what is your vision? Because while, while you and I can sit here and I think we do a pretty damn good job of trying to talk about what they do and don't need or, or what's going on or what they're trying to build towards based on reporting and like, okay, well, I need to know what they actually want, what they're actually trying to do. Are you trying to, um, do a quote unquote retool and be competitive again next year. Okay. That changes how I view things. Are you actually open to a rebuild now that the team has gone, I think three and 13 since Herb Simon's uh, meeting with reporters. Um, are you actually open to, to rebuilding slightly? Cause that changes my opinion too on, on what you need to do and where you're headed. Um, who is getting traded at the trade deadline? Are you making trades at the trade deadline? I know some of these things are not things that you can be publicly open about, but I do think, um, the organization's just lack of clarity and direction, uh, and unwillingness to, uh, quote unquote, saying anoint somebody is the wrong way to put it. But like we've talked about, like the unwillingness to really set a hierarchy among the roster. Like, I think that is my main answer for why we've gotten to where we're at, because this is a, it's a group of players that is just not on the same page with one another due to, um, a lot of things that have gone on in, in this, in this past year that we just had on past couple of years that we just had on. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's definitely something to be said for their, you know, since Nate McMillan, you kind of knew what the team wanted to be. I haven't fully known what the vision was exactly for what type of team in between those two coaching searches that they were hoping to be when those hirings were made. And then mm -hmm. the visions that were laid out never quite made sense for the roster as it was. So like you're saying, you know, if I'm going to hear Nate Bjorker and say, Oh, I want to be, you know, this disruptive and aggressive defense, then it didn't really make sense that you ran back the exact same type of roster. If that's what you wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Likewise, it's, it's evident that in order to make what Carlisle wants to do, especially offensively work, you need to find some players that fit that a little bit better, especially in terms of shooting. Um, so, and maybe they didn't expect, I mean, I doubt that they did expect that some of these players would be shooting the ball as poorly as they are, um, below career marks. And I know that isn't necessarily uncharacteristic across the NBA to have there be some 
um, regression from three offenses are down, but um, I don't think that it's normal that it's been as much of a drop off as it's been. And I think some of that was predictable. If you looked at the roster, I mean, even during preseason, it was like, you know, shooting was going to be somewhat of an issue unless the whole team was hot on the same night. So in terms of that, like it didn't really feel like it's necessarily, I think here lately, even though they haven't been winning, it's been coached a little bit more to the strengths of individuals, but a lot of times it's kind of felt like, you know, something being pressed on a group of players that uh, didn't necessarily fit what the strengths of those players were. But I do think that they've made adjustments this particular season more than Nate Bjorkman has. It just hasn't worked out, but kind of some things that I looked at too, when I was doing this is like, and not to pull the injury excuse completely, but Nate McMillan had TJ Warren for all but six games in his final season. Nate Bjorkman had TJ Warren for a total of four and Carlisle has yet to have him in a single game. In addition to, you know, TJ McConnell being out, Karis LeVert and the wrist injury, all of this COVID stuff, you know, whatever's going on with Miles now, um, other guys being in and out. And that that isn't an excuse for all of it, but it hasn't really seemed like there's been much time for those guys to really gel. And I do think that TJ Warren matters. I'm not going to pretend to you that he's an all NBA caliber player or an all-star, but you can see the ways that he would be shifting certain lineups and it's just never been an option all year. But beyond that, I think that it also matters that over these last three seasons that Nate McMillan had the benefit of coaching most of these players over more than one season. So like TJ Warren was new to him in the 1920 year, as was Jeremy Lamb and a few others. But like he had been coaching, you know, Sabonis and and Turner and and some of these other guys. So um, he knew their tendencies. He knew those guys knew going in, hey, we're playing for McMillan again. He's probably going to do the same stuff as he did last year, minus some tweaks for some of the new guys that we're incorporating versus, you know, Nate Bjorkren's getting to learn a whole new team of players amid a season where there wasn't a full training camp and you're just launching right into it with a very short turnaround where they were, you know, basically assembling his staff last minute and now Carlisle comes in and it's much the same thing. Like you could tell that there was a period where he was still learning, you know, what he needed to do with certain guys and that it took time. So um, that is one other benefit that I think Nate McMillan had. And also just the Eastern conference is better. Now there's currently nine teams in the East who are above 500. That was not the case for Nate McMillan or Nate Bjork. And I think that last year, there was uh, seven teams and under Nate McMillan, there were six along with just several losing teams. So um, they're facing more competition in that way. And then the defense has obviously dropped off each of the last two years. That's a pretty big reason for why uh, they are where they are. And we can go back and look at some of the Dan Burke stuff. I know that even I personally criticized some of that because I didn't always feel like they were as proactive defensively as they needed to be against, you know, higher caliber playoff opponents where, you know, we're going to come out and just let Joel Embiid turn miles into paper mache instead of coming out earlier with double teams or fronting. And they would react late in games and did the same stuff against Trey young and other top tier talents where I felt like it was too reactionary at times, but the overall product, you know, say what you want. It was a top six defense that's dropped off. And the one thing that I looked at, I mean, I wrote the, the article about hedging, which I do think matters, but one of the biggest things that I don't think we've talked enough about with the defense dropping off, which showed up yesterday as well, is that under Dan Burke and Nate McMillan, they forced turnovers and scored points that way because they needed to, because their offense, you know, was just kind of 
clogged a lot of the time, but uh, they also did that without fouling. Like they were a very cleanly defensive team that did not put guys on the line and they didn't force turnovers by, you know, trying to shoot every passing lane like Karis LeVert. They forced turnovers as a product of what their system was. Nate Bjorker and they forced turnovers, but it led to some gambling when they didn't get them. And it was like, it was the purpose of their seat, their, their defense to be super over aggressive and either funnel stuff to the rim or be forcing turnovers with all the on-ball pressure they had. And now they're not really doing either one. They're fouling all the time. Like, I think that they're like top five in sending teams to the free throw line, free throw attempt rate. And then they're not really getting out and scoring in transition off of turnovers and in terms of volume of points off turnovers either. So um, I think that that's a pretty big thing. Like they just, they send opponents. And I think some of it's because they're out of position, like in the hedging, you know, now we're coming over and having to rotate late. And now we're just grabbing instead of getting in front and actually making a play that way. So I think the foul issues is part of it. And then if we look at the clutch time, you know, for much of the year, the Pacers still had a positive net rating. It didn't match their record because they've lost so many close games. And you and I have gotten into that before. Like, I, I think that that is somewhat telling because teams do operate differently at the end of games. They'll start exaggerating stuff more and the Pacers have struggled against that. But um, they've already played 23 clutch games at the midway point of the season. And under Nate McMillan, they played 15. And there's two ways of looking at that. One way is like, well, Rick, Rick's keeping them in games and, and they're still keeping things close despite, you know, what some of the roster issues and, and injury issues have been. And I think I look at it a little bit differently and that like, yeah, yesterday was a clutch game, but you also gave up a 40 point first quarter. Like a lot of times with the Nate McMillan stuff, they came out with a more consistent effort and product that they didn't need to get into clutch time. Like they, they, it, 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 if they were going to melt down in the last five minutes, it didn't matter as much because they were taking game of the, taking care of the game before they got to the last five minutes. So um, I know that they probably had a few more blowouts in those situations, but it seemed like they were able to avoid that a little bit better than now when you can see sometimes where they just have moments where there's not effort for a quarter or they don't come out with the right focus. I mean, just like yesterday, how does Lance Stevenson go into the lane on the first free throw of two and get a lane violation? Like there's just so much stuff where it's just lack of focus. And then that adds up when you do make a run at the end of the game and you can't just get over the hump. So um, that's kind of my long winded thing at various things that I've looked at. And I agree totally with what you said. I think that there's also just this unquantifiable element where it's like, okay, we've been doing this for three years now. We went from being a playoff team that couldn't get out of the first round. We went from being a play in tournament team that got embarrassed against the wizards. And now we're not even in play and contention and, and, you know, guys wanting bigger roles amid losing and the fit just doesn't quite seem there seem like it's there and that it's just stale and it's time to just you know make changes so um that's how i would answer that to the numerous people that worded that question in different ways oh and i appreciate that question it was a good one to hit on um well treading into a little bit uh happier waters i guess or, or more foreboding waters um, I probably just used that word incorrectly. I don't know. We'll see. Less um, foreboding waters. Less foreboding waters. Yes. There we go. Um, I normally type things and look it up on dictionary.com later. Uh, from Craig Lindeman on Twitter. Thank you for Oh, uh, no. This was my other question. This is your other question. Oh, man. Uh, do you want me to choose a different one? Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Well, another thing that I've been thinking on uh, that I'm not really sure what to make of moving forward, but um, here it goes. I'll let it rip. 
what do you make of Malcolm Brogdon's place on the team moving forward to a degree? Um, I know that's a very large and open-ended question, but um, this is less about, I, I, this is not at all about trading him or anything like that, but in terms of his places, you know, the, you know, he's, he's been open about wanting to be uh, the primary ball handler and being more of a point guard. Um, I think we've seen some of the struggles with that this year. Part of that is again, like we've, we've talked about so much with just this team not being conjoined at all in the half court. Um, I think it's so easy to forget how good he was last year. Um, even with some of the issues that he had, like he still, uh, despite shooting almost 39% from three, he still had issues with, with, with teams going under him on ball screens. And that's been an issue this year as well. Um, but where are you at with his, his kind of place in the offense or the hierarchy of the team moving forward? And, and what that means for team, for the team, for him, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, are we just look at Malcolm Brogdon in a, in a, vacuum like independent of what the rest of the roster is or even what team he's on um and Seth and I talked about this yes on Sunday Mm -hmm. that like he's he's a 1.75 player and that he can run offense but ideally he leans more towards the two guard spot I think that like what you said he's been open that he wants to play point guard and I don't have a complete problem with him doing that in every situation, but against certain types of coverages, it shows up. I mean, there was even a stretch when they were playing in Denver, which I know he had strep throat in this game, so it's not completely fair to bring it up, but it does that show up. That game feels like a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, it does, but um, it's shown up at other times too where, you know, the he'll be running a, mid, a middle pick and roll with Sabonis, and if I were, you know, telling another team how to defend him, Austin Rivers did a good job, like basically jump that screen or weak him to get him to go to his left out of middle pick and roll because he doesn't, you know, his pull up shooting in those situations isn't great. And he'll just keep trying and trying to get to that screen. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, kind of watching a bird fly into the same glass window a little bit. (laughs) So um, I think sometimes like we look at him versus Karis and it's like, you know, his game isn't as aesthetically pleasing at times as Karis's is. He actually hasn't been bad in isolation for his career because he can shoot the three, but it goes back to what we said earlier. He doesn't always have the burst to shake, you know, lengthy defenders like Anthony Edwards up in Minnesota at the end of the game or, you know, certain types of stuff like that. So if you have a one five pick and roll and they switch it, you know, that's a little bit harder versus if he's on the second side and you're, he was playing with a point guard and you could throw it to him and he could attack in a straight line because he is such a good driver. Um, that's part of it. I think sometimes he, he needs to attack up the sidelines and you'll see more of that stuff. And then that kind of eliminates what you can do in the middle pick and roll, because that allows him to get a, a step quicker. He's very good at using, you know, a little bit, hit the pause out of pistol or other stuff and attack. So it's hard to say too, just because of what his injury history is. And I know that's a really lame thing to bring up, but you know, he's, he's good for like, this year, just look how many times, how how consistently has he been in the lineup for five games in a row? I mean, it. I won't be surprised, and it's not like me just putting this out into the world. I have no sourcing on this, but I won't be surprised if they also evaluate their options with him at the end of the season, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Like, I totally understand why they signed him to the extension. I think he's a good and valuable player that fits on most things of what you do. And maybe that's part of the thinking that like, Hey, even if we do change up the roster or we change what we're doing at point guard, he still can fit into most systems. And I think that's how most other teams are going to see him. But 
I remember when they signed him, like there was all the controversy about like there was a lot of interest that was being leaked in Ricky Rubio and the fan base really didn't want Ricky. And then stuff came about Malcolm Brogdon and it was billed as like, you know, this is going to be this perfect fit with Victor. And I read it. I wrote an article at the time. I was like, you know, how will Malcolm Brogdon mesh with Victor Oladipo? And that's what I talked about. Like neither one of them were really like perfect ones to be playing point guard for different reasons. And then defensively, because Brogdon is what he is at the point of attack, you don't really, Victor could do that, but that wasted what he did away from the ball. So it's like that this year. Like, I feel like Justin's kind of lost a little bit of a step guarding smaller guards. And yet he still has to do that in some games because you don't want Brogdon doing it. And then he's off on the wing and it just, it creates matchup issues at times that are hard to get around or, you know, and then in other cases too, like in Malcolm's defense, you know, you're playing the Bucks, and he's really kind of the only logical person in the starting lineup that you have to throw at a Giannis. So he's having to do all of that and then also be running offense for you at the other end. And it felt like he was just way, there was too much being run through him at the beginning of the season. There's no way that his touches and time of possession and passes should have been on par with what Lucas were in the Mavs system a year ago. That's asking way too much of Malcolm Brogdon. It needed to be a more even distribution, but they didn't have Karras either. And at that point they didn't even have Lance or, you know, Kiefer. So, and it's tough at times to play TJ McConnell because if he's off ball, we saw what those issues were. If you were, you know, playing both of them at the same time, but you know, that's neither here nor there. So I don't have a perfect answer. I think that if he does stay on the roster, it would, it would probably be beneficial to be, you know, letting somebody else do more of the main playmaking. So he could be more of like, you know, a secondary guy who could still be doing stuff with Sabonis. Cause like two years ago, they were like a guaranteed bucket in like two man action. And yeah. some of that I felt like under Nate Bjorken was he didn't want to let Malcolm get to his mid range. We brought that up in our, uh, end of season pods where it was like, you could tell at times because of the unders, they needed to go to rescreens and be okay with him taking a pull up too, which he's been good at shooting in the past. And you could tell that Bjorkren didn't want him in that area. And then he would be kind of driving into crowds at the rim or they would just, it would end up being having to be a duck in for Sabonis because they couldn't get to it. Um, this year, I feel it's been a little bit more about the blitzing even than the, than the unders that he's kind of not handled as well. And, and needs to get better at, at placement of pocket passes and recognizing that. But um, I, I won't be surprised if they, consider what their options are with him. I know that's hedging my bets a little bit, but that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I felt I felt similarly. Um and this is again, it's not meant as anything on Malcolm. This is more just I think, especially for him and where he's at in his career with how the team has gone um this most recent stretch, you know, like like we mentioned, I, I think two and twelve and two and ten in the last twelve, whatever, since December. Um I do wonder like how much he's thought about it too especially with not playing in a lot of those games. Um, I would imagine it weighs on you a bit. It's just tough, too, because like you mentioned, the injuries certainly play a factor, but he's just so good when he plays. But the problem is, too, like because of the roster being what it is, they ask too much of him. All, I, I don't know. Like I, I don't feel comfortable saying, like, oh, well, Malcolm asked this much of himself. Like I do think there's a lot of conjecture that goes on with the fan base in regards to that. Um, I just – like who else are they asking to, to to run offense from the perimeter is is what I would immediately ask people. Like I don't, I don't. Malcolm has certainly been imperfect as a lead ball handler and as a point guard, but he's 
I think sometimes people get way too caught up with the, well, is he's not a point guard. This team needs a point guard. Like, yes, they do. But they also could certainly use a Malcolm Brogdon pretty much all the time. So, yeah, um, I mean, I, oh, he's sorry, regressed. He's had regression as a shooter that hasn't been helpful, both yeah, off the definitely. catch and off the dribble. Because last year you could point to it and be like, well, if he plays off ball more and Karras is doing more on ball, he's shooting well off the catch. He hasn't shot the ball well in either of those two circumstances. And the one thing that I would say that those people probably have somewhat of a point on is they could have been doing more um, with Sabonis at the elbows to definitely, initiate offense definitely. than what they were doing to relieve some of his burden. Like it, it was, it was too perimeter oriented for him to be doing all of that. Yeah, no, 100%. I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I should have phrased that differently, but um, just in general, like I think uh, seeing what he can do is just going back to Milwaukee and also seeing more just of him, getting to attack second side. Like I think we've seen him uh, getting back to his level as a rim threat this year was huge. Even with his injuries, like he's shooting 61% of the rim again, which is about where he was at his entire time in Milwaukee after two really ugly rim shooting seasons, his first two years in, in Indiana. Um, and it hasn't been just because he's, he's taking less and being more cautious. Like he was just legitimately finishing better. Um, and I think a lot of that is being able to do more coming off the second side and, and doing things um you know, with a little bit better um, spacing is the wrong word. Um, but no, I think it's true. I mean, the positioning of uh, positioning matters. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the coaching staff has been better at, you know, having guys meet their marks on the outside that made those types of drives easier for him. Mm-hmm, definitely. But yeah, no point. Long story short, um, it's up in the air with him. I think a lot is what is he interested in doing in Indiana moving forward? Um, how does he view the team moving forward? How's, how should the team view him moving forward? Because I do think like he is a very high level player that I think teams would be interested in acquiring. A lot is going to, I don't, I don't want to, again, I don't want to conjecture too much. I don't know how much uh, he would necessarily get back just because of the injury concerns that are very real as we've seen, but um, Malcolm's a damn good player. And I, 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 I hope things work out in Indiana, but we'll see overall. I just want to see him get to perform at his best and be healthy, but that's where I land on it too. Right. So now we will go into the question that both of us wanted to answer, which yes. is nice because we get to hit on a little bit uh, sunnier note. So yeah, this question came from Craig on Twitter and basically hypothetically, if playing time opens up for players after the trade deadline, what are you going to be watching for from the following players? Chris Duarte, Isaiah Jackson, Goga, and O'Shea. So you can start with any of the four of them. I just named them in order. O'Shea is an easy one because I feel like we've talked about O'Shea so much, but I'll just run through some of the things that that I really want with him. Um, like I uh, I emailed you about this yesterday because I got excited. I was like, O'Shea, finished through contact. Uh I mean, that's a big one for him. Like just getting stronger on both ends is going to be absolutely huge for him in terms of whether or not he's more viable as a starter. Like I mentioned on our most recent pod, like I would love to just see him start. And and I, I should have phrased it differently. Like I don't think he's really ready to start or capable of being a starting four in the NBA yet, but that's more just because I'm tired of watching what this starting lineup looks like. But um, I think – he's shown really intriguing stuff off the dribble, but he's just not at a point where he's able to put it all together yet and really punish the defense for, for giving him opportunities to attack off the catch. Um, I do think the shooting has really saying being impressive. This year would be the wrong way to put it. I've been happy that it hasn't regressed the way that 
I thought it might based on, um, you know, his past seasons. Um, you know, last year was just a, a wild shooting year for him compared to historical um, comparisons, even going back to Syracuse when he was in college. Like, he just had never been a really plus shooter before. Um, I felt comfortable with that staying. Um, I think defensively working at the point of attack as well, I, I actually think strength would benefit him there to a degree. Um, that he just – he needs playing time to a degree too, just to iron out a lot of these things because I think he needs to rein in some of the – um, some of his energy, like I, as much as I love watching how energetically he plays, I do like, I don't, I don't know. Would you agree? Like maybe like a five to 10% dial back of his energy would, would help a little bit and staying down on things and, um, being a little bit more, uh, even keeled. Yeah. I mean, I think that there was a possession yesterday where, uh, I think Goga went out to hedge and he was the player defending the wing on the weak side and he went to tag from there. Cause what you said, it was like, Oh, the ball's on the move. I'm going to play with a lot of energy and rotate over there. And that's really not where you want to send the help from, uh, from the two side in that situation. Cause the guard's going to go under, that means the shake is going to be completely or the opposite slots going to be open. There's not going to be any hands impacting that. So um, that was one of the reasons they gave up a couple open threes. Um, I mainly like, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, like he's kind of a discount Robert Covington in a lot of respects because he doesn't really have much of an off the dribble game. Yesterday he did attack some closeouts, which was good to see and adjusted his body midair, but that's part of it. Like he, he doesn't always adjust um, to compensate for some of what his finishing is. So um, he did make a couple good plays in that regard. And I still think the number one thing is if he's going to, if he's going to be playing more minutes, he's got to get better at his interior defense. It's way too easy for opposing guys who have more strength or more physicality than him to score. I mean, even yesterday he was giving up baskets to Marcus Morris in the post. Actually what I realized yesterday is that I should work for a Vegas sports book because before that game started, I was just looking at the starting lineups and, and I texted somebody and I was like, okay, the, the over under for this game for combined points for Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris is 46 and a half. What are you taking? They're like, Oh, the over easy. And I was like, I, th- I think that you could get betting action on both sides of that, but I think I would take the over as well. And then I think they combined for 47. Like it was just so predictable. Like not only just because Marcus Morris always seems to heat up against the Pacers, but they just don't have anybody to throw out there in those situations. And Tori had an off game, but like it, it, it shows up when O'Shea has to defend the post that guys pretty much just go, I mean, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel to an extent. Like it's, it's going to be pretty easy points if when he's in those positions. So um, he's, he's got to continue to to work on his core strength and his ability to hold his spot. And that kind of goes to both ends of the floor. So yeah, he's kind of the easy one. Um, who do you want to take next? Uh, let's do, let's do Goga. Um, okay. I I don't know. Uh, I think with Goga, I don't want to just say confidence because that's, you know, that, that sounds so um, lacking in nuance. But I do think that's 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 a, a very real thing for him. Like even yesterday, he had three or four opportunities where he could have taken a three. Um, he didn't like he had enough space just didn't feel comfortable taking it. I do think part of it is like he, like it's just the processing the game for him still. And I think a lot of that is just getting playing time. I I don't want to just say playing time is the biggest thing for him, but like, I don't know. I think he's shown 
capability to play NBA minutes, but he just never gets consistent run to actually do it. So it's hard to really be, uh, you know, super nitpicky. Like I do think it working at uh, not jumping at things as much on defense, like he can be very hyperactive at times uh, in trying to contest the shit out of things. Um, his closeouts are, a, as we saw yesterday, his closeouts are not good. Um, but part of it is like he's not going to be getting asked to close out as much if he's not having to play as a um, like a as like a pseudo four in the lineup. Um, I think with I, I don't know with like I, I'm just not sure how comfortable I am with him as a trigger man because he's not a great screener still. Um, you can see him really pause and and question what he's doing at the top of the key a lot, um, and it can really freeze things up and any actions going on there. I do like, I don't know. I, I think he's been okay as a roller. Um, he's really good working at, well, not really good, but he's solid working out of the dunker spot. Like I feel like that's where he's seen most comfortable offensively, but that's just not what the offense asks of him. I, again, I think the biggest thing for me is just getting playing time. Um, but where are you at with Koga? Yesterday, obviously, he got more minutes, so that's a little bit easier for me to look at. I mean, he was playing mm-hmm. at the five in the minutes when Sabonis was out there. Like he was the def- he was the one in the middle of the zone. It just didn't always look like it because their rotations were so bad. Like they kept ended up with two players on the wing and then having to bump down, and then he would have to chase out from the middle. So, I mean, that was happening even in minutes when they weren't double big. And and uh, I think the one three that Batum got, O'Shea got caught behind a, a a screen from Isaiah Hartenstein that he didn't even recognize was there, and Batum got it open. Um, but I mean, it it's so weird because like there was a play late where he was playing in the middle of the zone and was so not understanding how that they needed to rotate in that that Sabonis from the opposite lower forward position had to chase to Batum in the left corner. So he was playing forward on the right of the zone and had to come clear across while Sabonis was like, what are you doing? And then had to, to close out on that. There's still a lot of times positioning wise with Goga defensively where he just needs to get better. One of his biggest struggles, I think whether, I mean, he had a really bad position against when he played against the bulls where he was hedging and just didn't even know how to execute it. But um, last night he had a couple or yesterday afternoon, I guess I should say where he leaves the ball too early to return to his own man. So you got to contain that first before you go back to the pop or before you go back to the roll. I think that the Clippers were, and this is why I said yesterday, like it really wasn't about this because the Clippers only scored 42 paints points in the paint, which is like the equivalent of a 27th ranked paint offense. But they were like seven of eight against him at the rim. And it's not because like he has the standing reach. Um, he has the ability to block shots. It's just positioning wise. He always, he isn't always in the right spot. So, and that also applied to the zone at the end of the game. I'm also kind of on the opposite side. Cause I felt like his feel when I've seen him in the G league and when he's playing for the Pacers in terms of like doing some of the Sabonis stuff and playing as a handoff, threat and like elbows I think that that's that's okay like I I feel like he seems like he knows where he needs to be and sometimes some of the hitchiness that you might be seeing has to do with either the player that's coming off of the handoff not quite leveraging their strength or you know they're being overplayed and then it just it's a little bit delayed in what they need to do Um, I think Rick Carlisle kind of mentioned that he was he was pleased with some of what Goga did in that particular regard but 
obviously he needs to shoot the three a lot better. He made one yesterday. And I think that kind of references your confidence thing. Like he made one yesterday after a pass from Duarte, where he actually had to sidestep to his left from the right side of the floor. So the shooting touch, like mechanically his shot has never seemed bad. He just, I mean, he's shooting like 15% from three in these games. And so many of his shots are like one of three things. It's either dunker three or put back. And I think because on the roll, his screening isn't great, but it, if he can catch the ball at a rim roll, he's okay. If he has to catch it on the short roll and then make progress to the basket, I'm usually afraid of what's going to happen. Like if he has to take a couple steps in order to get himself to the rim or make a play, that's when it gets a little bit uh, muddied for me. So um, I feel like some of my Goga stock, I would sell a little bit of it just because we have seen more of him and stuff that he needs to make progress on. And I get that it's minutes, but also, you know, this is multiple years now of, of the positioning still being somewhat of a problem and him not really being much of a pick and roll threat. And again, some of that's just missing shots out of the pop. Um, and you hope that maybe he makes more of those, but, um, that's, that's mainly the things for me is he just needs to be more aware of where he needs to be on the floor mainly. So that's where I would lean with, with Goga. Yeah. Yeah. No awareness is just a big, big thing for him. And I, maybe it's unfair for me to chalk it up to minutes as much, but I just think it's, it's tough with how little he's actually gotten to play both in the G league and NBA this year. I don't know. It's just, and two, I mean, like what, this is his third system now. Like it's just, and I, I know it is everybody on the roster who's been here the last three years, but it doesn't make it easier. So, um, but yes, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, do you want to go, you want to go to Chris? Let's talk about Chris Duarte. Okay. Um, yep. As um, I mean, I've been so impressed with Chris this year. Uh, I think he's really surpassed what I expected of him as a rookie um, but there are a couple things that I really want to see him work on. And some of the stuff we've hit on before, like, you know, working on, uh, how he comes off screens so he can become a movement shooter. Like, uh, like we've talked about, he can come off movement and hit shots, but it's after getting set. It's not like he can't do the Doug McDermott swinging out of a, a, a stagger screens into a shot. Like immediately there are, to be fair, there are not a lot of guys in the NBA who are capable of doing that, but for Chris's archetype and what he's trying to be in the NBA, that's going to be big for him to develop is that um, where else? I think, I, I mean, I, I I've been impressed with his development in the season too. Like I feel like he's already gotten better as a pick and roll ball handler and playmaker. Like a lot of it is uh you know, just be like straight spread pick and roll or anything like that. He has a lot of work to do before he can become some kind of standstill creator like that. Um, I think there's, part of that's just his his build already and, and where he is I, I i don't think that he's quite that guy he doesn't have the burst on the ball he's not uh he it, and we've talked about this too it almost seems like he has two kinds of vision like his vision is uh coming off of an action into a ball screen is where he's his best operating as a playmaker um if he's you know if you just set a screen for him in the corner and, and work from there his, his playmaking isn't at the same level um for whatever reason um, so like working on, on, uh, I don't want to say it's just strictly shot diet, but working more on, um, the nuances of, of when to shoot, when to pass, when to drive, figuring out more out of how to get the most of himself as a, as a pick and roll playmaker, I think is, um, where I really want to see some stuff from him. His closeouts too aren't all oh, his closeouts aren't bad. 
I think more of a um, how do I want to put it on defense? Um, I don't think his closeouts are awesome, but working on uh, working a little bit more on some of the nuances of defense too, and just because he's pretty raging, he can he can overshoot at times. Um, I feel like I've said that a million times on this podcast, but um, I that that would be kind of my rough outline for him too. But also like working on contact finishing is going to be big for him as well, especially as a pick and roll finisher, like. Um, he it, like, again, like, like, like I just mentioned, like, it feels like he's almost two different players, um, coming off of a second side action or being involved in the initial action as a finisher. Um, like, you know, he really benefits from, from coming off of angles and, um, being able to use his body after getting some momentum first, getting towards the rim rather than, you know, coming out of a standstill off a screen into a, I mean, coming out off a standstill ball screen, getting downhill, it, it's a lot harder for him to finish that way. So th- those would be my things that I look at right now. I mean, yesterday, I think he had one of his best games of the season and yeah. not just box score wise. He made good decisions. I mean, he had six assists. I would say that several of those came in transition or just like, you know, an easy pass on the perimeter. The one that was really good is what you're describing. I mean, he came off a stagger on the right side to to get to his left, which I think you can tell in the one article I wrote a couple of weeks ago, he's more comfortable when he's in the left corner and can come off a DHO or come off of two screens in terms of him being a shooter. But when he comes off it from the right side, he generally puts the ball on the floor and is going to get to the rim. And he had a really nice change of speed and found Goga um, putting the ball on the floor with his left. So um, he showed that early in preseason and we haven't seen a ton of that because he hasn't been able to be involved in as many of those actions because they've been short on ball handlers and playmakers and he kind of had to handle some of that for a while during the Brad Wanamaker phase but uh um, about that time yeah um I agree with you that he, he's gonna have to get better at the way that he, that he adjusts his body because overall like he's 24 but I still think he needs to get stronger because I noticed mm-hmm. against the Suns and last night that part of the reason that I now understand why they might not be running as much off-screen stuff for him is it's kind of like when you watch Michael Porter Jr. with the Nuggets when he was still healthy like especially in that playoff series that they played against the trailblazers and one of the early games, like Norm Powell's physicality with him bothered him. So if he got knocked off the screen, then it was just kind of like, Oh, you know, I don't know what to do now. Mm-hmm. And there was times against Phoenix where he was being defended. And if he got knocked off of his path, it kind of disrupted the offense a little bit. Or if a DHO got overplayed, I think he needs to get better a little bit at his deception and the way that he moves off of that. So his off ball ability to set up his man, I think could still get a little bit better, but I mean, gosh, the guy's always shot ready. He can shoot. And and while I do think he needs to get better at reads as a primary and pick and roll, like he actually can shoot against a hedge. He can shoot against a switch and create space. He can step back. He can sidestep. Like I understand why they're having him do some of that. And especially over the back end of this season, like if they do make trades and they open up playing time, it won't, it makes sense in a winning environment for you to want him to be, you know, this plug and play guy that you're going to have him be doing more off ball actions to get to on ball outcomes. But for the long term view, I don't think it would be terrible over the back end if they are still letting him kind of, you know, mess through some of the pick and roll stuff to see if he can have, 
you know, a little bit higher ceiling. And if he can continue to do some things in isolation, even if it doesn't look good right now, but that kind of goes back to what is your direction for the team? Are you, what, what are you wanting to be? That isn't so much on him. It's about, you know, what's the best way to use him. And one, one question that I will throw in here, what was your thought when they started Dwayne Washington yesterday? Instead of Chris. Hey, I feel like, I mean, it's not even like Chris was running that much of the bench unit. It felt like they just wanted to keep him in rhythm because he's been coming off the bench. Um, that was my read on it, at least, especially because he's only been back a couple games still. It's not like he's been back for that long. But it was kind of odd. Like, I, I don't know. It feels like if you, if you take somebody with the 13th pick and they started, what, like the first 15 games of the season? I don't know. It was a little bit weird, especially because he ended up playing starters minutes anyways. What did you take away from that? Yeah, I mean, I know that, and I don't really think this was the reason, but, you know, Dwayne Washington's dad, I do believe, played for the Clippers. So, I mean, I'm sure that was a nice moment for him, and I, I, I doubt that was the exact reason they did it. And Dwayne's had some nice, you know, things that he's done over the last several games, but I was a little bit surprised from it. I mean... Nate McMillan would do some of that too back in the day where if Darren Collison was out, they'd start the third string point guard like Joe Young might get a start where Corey Joseph kept coming off the bench because they wanted to maintain the continuity of the bench lineup. But like, let's face it, there's been no continuity anyways. You've lost, you know, eight of nine of 10 games now. And you were also down by three starters. So you were going to have awkward lineups playing yesterday anyways. So, um, Chris still played, uh, like you said, he still played 34 minutes. It's not really about playing time. It's about who he's getting the playing time against. And obviously the Clippers are all also depleted as well. But again, like, you know, what is the back end of this season about? I'd probably want to see him getting reps against starters again. Um, If Malcolm Brogdon's going to remain out, like we don't know what the situation with his Achilles is. I think he was questionable. I think he might've practiced over the weekend or at least done some light stuff. So if Malcolm Brogdon isn't going to be out, is going to be out. Like I probably would have wanted to see him get those minutes, especially because like the brief stretches where the defense was good yesterday were connected to when he was on the floor. Like when he was, it was so predictable because they came out to start the game and they were trying some of that zone. And like I said, Tori had some really uncharacteristic moments defensively early that haven't been how he's looked of late. And then they were, Karis had kind of taken some bad shots and, and they missed some other shots around the rim that were really turning into fast breakable opportunities for the Clippers with sleepy transition defense. Then they were trying to be in like, an aggressive drop with Sabonis and they were bringing both weak side defenders over. And I felt like over helping a bit against who the Clippers ball handlers were. And then when Chris comes in and he's playing with some of the starters, they go back to the hedging and Chris is really, you know, flying around and making the right rotations. And it felt like, you know, finally the defense looked like it was making a little bit of headway until there toward the end of the second, they kind of fell apart because they gave up some second chance threes and other stuff. But um, one thing that I think that's been really underrated about him these last couple games, including when they made the run against Phoenix with him out there with um, Sabonis and I believe Justin and Tori and um, Karis, is that he's been pressuring the ball full court like TJ McConnell style. Now, is he getting inbound steals? No, but his ball pressure has definitely been impacting the team's ability to get into their offense as quickly. And I don't think he's gotten a t- of credit for that and that's been something that I've noticed here over the last little bit since he's been back that they've been using him in a little bit different way that would be interested to continue to monitor if he can gap the ball properly in those situations and not give up like 
odd man advantages because I think he's been pretty good at it. Um, that That's kind of what I'm looking for from Chris, but we can go ahead and head into Isaiah Jackson. Yeah. Um, well, one last thing I do want to say. Oh. Um, I just – I know I was a little bit critical of his defense just because that was part of the question, but he uh, – I mean, he's pretty easily the second best or tied for best uh, wing, wing defender on the team by like a decent margin, I feel like, at least this year. Um, compared to Justin last year, no, I don't think so. But with how Justin's been this year, I think he's probably been better defensively. Um, and Torrey's definitely the top option as a wing defender for sure. But, I mean, Chris's ground coverage is fantastic. Like, I oh – God, he's 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 such a fun young player. He, I, I, I'm not trying to, like, fanboy out too much, but I've just really enjoyed watching him this year. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think some of it with Justin is more like – you know, what he's they, asked to do too. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's going to give up strength against bigger guys, but I think it's been more some of his like on ball stuff because mm-hmm. when, when they've been hedging, like his hip flexibility is really good and his ability to, you know, judge like, Hey, I, I can have a foot in the paint here and still, you know, tag that guy and get back out to my shooter that, that those types of judgment decisions from him have still been solid. I mean, I think that that's why I said, when I wrote the hedging article, you can tell a difference if that's what they're going to do when you're surrounding Sabonis with Chris, Tory, Justin, O'Shea, or, you know, Karis when he's out there as well. Like when you have more length than you have guys and not that Karis is always aware as an off ball defender because he is not, but um, the stretch in the third quarter, that was when their defense looked the best and the stretch at the back end of the second quarter yesterday is when the defense looked the best and that's what they were doing. So um, that that's kind of my takeaway with regard to that. But um, Isaiah Jackson, did you watch his G league game recently? I need to. Uh, I'm sorry that I haven't. I saw your clips that you put out, and I was talking to some some friends who who did watch the game about it. Uh, five of five from three, and I heard he was just absolutely incredible. Um, please do tell. Uh, I, I would like to hear all your observations. So, like, I wanted to show, obviously, that he's making the threes and that um, – especially the one where he took multiple dribbles and then took a sidestep. I was just like, wow, this is actually a thing now. Like it wasn't the most aggressive defense he was up against, I will say. Mm -hmm. And the other one was like a pass out of a spot up, but then it it typically gets categorized as a, as an ISO if you jab at the guy and then you take a dribble. So it wasn't necessarily like, you know, that it wasn't like a LeBron style. Like I hunted miles or Sabonis and backed out to the line and then created my three point shot. Like that's not necessarily what we're talking about, but the fact that, you know, shooting, was a major um, red flag that scouting experts had brought up about him headed into the season that he did make five threes says something. I will say that one of the twos that he tried to, to self-create in similar fashion was an air ball and the stroke didn't quite look the same. Um, I think overall from the game, he's still raw, like in a lot of respects and that they were using him like what you see up top with the Pacers like to run delay action as a trailer and there were times or you know where he was the away screener and the opponent they're playing Westchester and they were denying those away screens so if the offense stopped and he got handed the ball and there wasn't a natural next thing to get to it kind of grinded a little bit where he didn't know where to go next like after making a pass or setting a screen that that kind of showed up um he had some kind of inattentive minute possessions a few times on defense he got burned on a face cut um but like broad strokes if he does start to get minutes with the pacers which at this point 
I think that he's probably not quite ready to be in a normal NBA rotation based on what I've seen when he's played with the Mad Ants. But like the Pacers have lost nine of 10 games and I don't think it hurts to start like, especially with what the defense looked like yesterday. I'm not sure it would have hurt to throw him out there and see what he could do in certain spots. Like, especially after the trade deadline, I think that as, at some point in time, he's got to start playing. And if he's not going to play for the Pacers, then you need to assign him to the G league and let him start getting regular minutes there. Like he needs to play somewhere. So um, just like broader strokes of stuff that I've noticed or what I noticed in that particular game is um, he has an incredibly quick first step, but if the defense plays off of him, which is kind of strange because he had made five threes in that game, but if they do back off of him a few steps, if he, if his, if he can't catch the guy with the very first quick step, then he doesn't quite know what to do from there. I think his footwork on face-up attempts is going to need to improve. And then it also goes back to the same thing with Goga. As a defender, positioning-wise, he doesn't quite know where he needs to be. And he leaves the ball too early to return to the roll man or on the pop. He had some troubles defending Spain pick and rolls a couple of times where he just didn't understand the coverage. But then you'll watch him and it's just actual like defensive tools and his athleticism. Like there was a play where he just gets cross matched on a guard and the guy throws the pass and gets the boomerang back and actually backs up like, you know, I'm going to size up this mismatch goes to a step back and Ajax blocked a three in space with his left hand on a step back. Like that's an incredible amount of reach and footwork skills. Like typically against a big in those situations, you're going to have to back off, you know, because you don't want to give up the space that the guard could concede if they attack. And that's why, you know, guys will get those types of threes. So for his ability to stay that tight and still block it, like, I mean, we've all seen that in summer league, his ability to switch out is really impressive. Um, I, I don't know of a lot of players that I can name that have, um, that type of a tool set. Uh, now, how much of it will translate because of what his other defense looks like and whether you actually want to be switching all that all the time because of what mismatch you're going to give up underneath is a fair question, but um, very impressive against switches. I think he's going to need to work on what he does off the bounce against bigs a little bit. He can get a little bit out of control if he does use his first step and what um, he does around the basket. But yeah, I mean, I did not expect to turn on a G League game and be seeing Ajax making shots off of um, a sidestep and out of the pop and just in a spot up situation and go five of five and have his release look fluid. Um, So there's there's definitely upside with Isaiah Jackson for sure. Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm there with you. I just want to see him play like you mentioned, I. Um, I just think we're at the stage where this team needs to be playing their young players. Otherwise, what is the point? Um, I, you know, obviously that's that's not to say like bench Sabonis or something like that and shut him down for the year. That would be ridiculous. But um, I just think it's pretty clear we're we're at the stage where why aren't we trying this? Why aren't we seeing what's happening with him? Because he's very clearly shown that he has the tools and skill set to to at least perform physically at the NBA level, like fuck it. Let's see what happens if he gets some real reps playing. Like maybe it's too much and we can send him back down to the G league. That's okay. But let's give him 15 or 20 minutes against the team. Let's see what he can do. Can he give us another look that, that is useful? Um, and, and maybe he does find a way to stick early. You know, I, I just think that there, especially with how we've gotten now and, and I love it in the NBA where 
it's not just considered a demotion to play at the G League level. Like it's just a legitimate part of development and that we can get there, I think has been huge. Um, I just, I don't see what the point is in keeping him out of getting opportunities with, with the, with the main squad right now, because like, I mean, like we both saw, I remember how exciting it was to talk about him the first time we saw him play in, in summer league. Like he legitimately, like I did not on coming out, like I watched him at Kentucky and I did not see this level of feel or capability. And like, not even that I think he's quote unquote, like a high fuel guy, but just looking at who he is as a prospect, what he has to work with and the flashes that he's shown as, as a potential playmaker. Um, and just all of the, like, like you get what I'm getting at. He's 6'11", uh, 6'10", 6'11", with like 95th percentile athleticism and showing legitimate potential as a passer and shot maker. Like, that doesn't mean that I think he's going to be like Richard Lewis or anything, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be Richard Lewis. Like, there's a ton of potential there is the point. And I think it's we just have to see it actually get – see him get opportunities to, to show what he can do at the NBA level. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem, too, is that obviously he was in health and safety protocols and had the knee injury mm-hmm. earlier in the season, and then the G League season was paused. So even before this foot injury shows up with Miles, like there wasn't necessarily a place to be getting in minutes, and there probably is some value, too, to having him with the team because he can be, you know, at least playing three-on-three and stuff after practices with guys that – are NBA caliber players. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we both agree that it, to this point, unless they have like, you know, some Intel that they think that somebody more valuable is going to be available, you know, after the season is over, that it's going to be better off to make those, whatever moves you're going to make and make them now, because then you can open up playing time um, for some of these other guys with the caveat being that, I mean, they could be playing him at the four now. Yeah. So it, it I don't exactly know where the vision is there yet because they acted like over the summer. And I don't know if it was just because of what the current roster construct is or what they see of him, because they talked about that. They thought that they could see him as a a four, but then, you know, when he's with the G league, some he's playing at the five. And when he came in and played when miles was out uh, against Minnesota and he usurped Goga there for a little bit, or Goga got in foul trouble. I don't remember what the exact circumstance was, but he came in and played at the five in that game. So well, he did actually usurp Goga, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, I couldn't right. remember what the exact circumstance was. Yeah, because that's what it was, because he was very rough. He came out there and played at the five, and he defensively he didn't he had some issues, and then I don't think he played in the second half and they went with Goga instead. But um that's kind of where I wonder, like I don't and some of it would be with minutes, but that's showing up at the G League level where positionally on defense, he's, like I said, he's, he's just still raw. So um, under other circumstances, I don't know that I would think he's ready to be a rotation player, but given what the state of the team is, it can't, I don't think it can probably hurt to see, especially once the trade deadline's over, um, to find out what he can do in some minutes. Like I was surprised last night when they were in the hole that they were, which to, to their credit, they did dig out of that. Um, he didn't get a little bit of time, especially because he seems like a guy who would be helpful um, with some of the ground coverage. If you are going to be, you know, doing some of the hedging, but like I said, when they're up in Minnesota, they were in a zone and he, he didn't seem fully aware of what he needed to be doing, but um, I like Isaiah Jackson. I'm eager to see more of him from 
whichever team he's playing with, whether that's the Mad Ants or the Pacers, I, I think that he did some tantalizing things. If people want to go back and watch that G League game the other night um, and get a fuller picture of what he's doing. Definitely. Um, did you have, did you want to hit on Dwayne Washington at all? We don't have to. I know, I don't know whether or not to include him in, in part of the. No, I didn't prepare court. stuff for him. Okay. For well, this, we can skip. He wasn't that. in the question, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get to him on a later pod. Most definitely. Well, Caitlin, do you have anything else you want to close out on? Cause I think otherwise that, that closes out uh, two questions to offer us this month. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think that that does close out what we had. Um, just to say that next month when we're doing this, you know, what a time that'll be because I looked. <laughs> It'll be a couple of days after the trade deadline. Yes, the trade deadline will be over. So think about all of the new topics we'll have to oh, talk wow. about. Like all of that stress will be done. There might be different players on the team. Who knows? Like yeah, people should be looking forward to the February 2 haul because we'll be through this current time. There's going to be a lot going on then. Well, Caitlin, this was an absolute blast as always. Uh, do you have anything exciting coming up or anything you want to plug before we get out of here? No, I mean, we'll be preparing for our next pod of this week. And I rewatched that Clippers game. Bless you, know, you for that. I, yep, haven't, I yep. haven't done it yet, but I need to. <laughs> to. To see what we needed to see from that. And I don't know that I have a lot of major takeaways from that other than on to the next one. But um, I will say uh, random Clippers takeaway that I've, I've had all season. Amir Coffey is a nice player. I really enjoyed watching him develop. He was a guy who I didn't think was an NBA guy when he first came in, and now he's like kind of just a good NBA guy. So yeah, the Pacers sure made sure to make sure everybody knew that <laughs> yes. yesterday. If you are uh, if you are six six or taller, chances are you will have a career game against the Indiana Pacers to close out the year. So, yeah. Well, Caitlin, this was a blast. Everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you and get your feedback. Um, of course, send us any questions, comments, anything over on Twitter. Um, and most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening.